How long have you been in the Navy? I've been Black Bay Life. I'm Jamie Britt. And I'm Heath Britt. And together we are E14. We have 40 years of naval service. And each week we discuss a potpourri of topics, which we like to call smoke pit topics. These are real world topics that concern us, our marriage, and our Navy with a sailor twist. So join us each week as we dive into the deep end. Booyah! Hey everyone, welcome back to E14 Podcast. I'm Jamie Britt. And I'm Heath Britt. And together we are E14. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our own and not the United States Navy or my command. So you can take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Hey everybody, welcome back to the E14 Podcast. We have with us today, Miss Joni Horton. Hey Joni, how you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys? Doing great. Hey, doing uh, great. Doing awesome. Thanks for joining us today. This is uh, I've been looking forward to this for a, yeah, for a while. Too. And just for, for our listeners, can you give us the nickel tour on Joni Harton, please? Sure. I was born and raised in a small town in Indiana, and I joined the Navy right out of high school. I became an Arabic CTI. I served for seven and a half years between uh, Monterey, California at the Defense Language Institute and beautiful Fort Gordon <laughs> in oh, Augusta, nice. Georgia. Two two shore tours in a row. Um, wow. I used my GI Bill and I went back to school and I am now a cardiovascular perfusionist working in open heart surgery. Awesome. I'm going to talk a little uh, slack to you. Rewind, rewind. Yeah. We got to go back to the, the Navy days or the yeah. high school days. Oh, yeah. But real quick, just so you're spoiled, you got to go to Monterey. That's Yeah. yeah. Yes. And in fact, I have wanted to go back ever since I PCS. It is yeah. the most beautiful little town. It, and it truly is. It feels like a small town. Yes, and you've got wow. ELI there and the beach. And you are close to Pebble Beach. You're close to San Francisco. You're close to Big Sur. You're close to Carmel. It's incredible. The worst part is when you're there, you're in E3 and you cannot enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> you can't pump. spend anything. <laughs> you got no money. So exactly. you, you can buy a couple of things at the farmer's market and just watch everybody else live their amazing life. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So did you want to get back into high school? Yeah, because the like, I, it just kind of blows my mind that you are, you know, Navy enlisted and then now you're like a huge cardiovascular profusionist. So like how I just want to get into your story because it's just such a great climb i think yeah definitely yeah so uh, take us back yeah to like you know high school joining the navy what were you thinking at that time sure i discovered that i had a knack for languages growing up they did a pilot program when i was in first grade teaching us french wow and i was like oh wow you mean i can speak to french people now <laughs> that's cool and i loved the idea of being able to speak speak to somebody that I'd previously never been able to talk to. I was a really talkative kid. In fact, the only thing that my teachers ever said remotely negatively about me was talks too much. (laughs) 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 Distracts her neighbors. Yeah, right. (laughs) In several languages. (laughs) They talk too much in several languages. Right. It just opened up the door for me to be able to talk to more people (laughs) and distract more people. Exactly. Hey, I mean, that's awesome because I mean, I, I know one language half ass. 
<laughs> so that's English. We'll see. So <laughs> I do want to go into your enlistment process because the question I have there in what we've heard, or they make you take this test, right? Defense yes. language, aptitude, battery, but yes. it's not even a real language. No, so we get a lot of like bilingual. Uh, I'm a recruiter now. So we get a lot of bilingual applicants and they're like, yeah, I want to do I want to be an interpreter. And I'm like, well, uh, it's not what you think. It's it's like a made up language that you have to learn. Do you Absolutely. remember that? Yes. Yes. I actually remember the D-Lab very well um, because I was so worried about it. You know, I had taken um, French, I'd taken Spanish, I'd taken German, I'd taken Russian. I had done a lot of language wow. in school and I loved every single one of them, but I'd never tried to learn a made up language before. <laughs> and the the test was make or break. You know, you, you go in, you take it and you either get a good enough score or you don't. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because they they do a little bit to test sort of your background in English but then they start teaching you bits and pieces of the rules of this made up language. And then they'll ask you something else and then they'll come back to a rule that they taught you 10 minutes ago. And then you have to answer multiple questions or listen to um, words in that made up language and tell them what it means based on the rules that you've already learned. That is interesting. And that's crazy because especially you grew up in small town, Indiana. Is that what you said earlier? Mm-hmm. I I grew up in a small town, Louisiana. We had Spanish in our school, and that was it. You guys, yeah. you learned all these languages, or you got opportunity to learn all these languages in school? So French, Spanish, and German were all offered. But I was very lucky because our broadcasting teacher, Mr. Connor, was a forming, former Navy CTI. And he oh. was a Russian linguist. And I badgered him for about six months. And he took me on in an independent study and allowed me to take Russian one and two with him. He created a course for me in Russian. Oh, wow. Wow. So was he like your your, uh, kind of reason why you wanted to do CTI? He was what opened the door. Uh And then I was in the guidance counselor's office where I worked during lunch because I was the kid that liked my teachers better than my peers. <laughs> and so I worked in the guidance uh, counselor's office and I was working on one of my college applications and the new Navy recruiter walked in to introduce herself to our guidance counselors. And one of the first things she said was, what are your plans after high school? And I said, well, I'm filling out my college application right now. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I would like to be the United States ambassador to Russia because I I've always dreamt big. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. You had big dreams. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very big dreams. Very big dreams. I, and, I visited Russia in high school as well. And I fell in love with that country too. Like I was in culture, uh, 17 years old. Just love it. Yeah. yeah. The culture is incredible. Their history is wild and rocky and I was under the impression that it would be a really hot language. And so I was like, okay, okay, tell me, tell me about this, this Navy language thing. Because she said, you know, where are you planning to go to school? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's really hard to find a college that takes foreign languages seriously, that treats it as more than just an elective course. Right. And she said, well, you know, the number one language school in the world, you have to be in the military to go to. And I was like, okay, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's, and that's that, how I ended up in the Navy. Wow. Wow. So you joined the Navy as a, as a CTI. Correct. Is that, that you came in as a CTI? You didn't cross rate later? Nope. Nope. Came that. in. I did very well on my made up language test. Right. And, <laughs> and I qualified to take a cat four language. Um, so they separate the languages based on difficulty. So oh, okay. cat one, the easiest all the way up to cat four, the hardest. So Arabic, I guess, is one of the harder languages. Arabic right? is one of the harder languages in addition to Chinese and Korean. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I can't imagine Arabic because honestly, I'm, I'm going to sound like a dumbass redneck, but I hear a lot of hawking loogies when I, when I hear Arabic. Yeah, it's you, you know what I mean? Different I mean, sounds. Way different. Those sounds are hard to make. Same thing they, with like the Asian languages. You're talking about like Korean and Chinese. Very hard for American. Well, at least this American. <laughs> to to make those those sounds. So how was that? Did you did you struggle with that, or did it come pretty natural to you? Some of the some of the sounds are a little guttural, but you know I took four years of German in high school, so making those kind of back of the throat sounds were were not that difficult for me. And with Russian, I had already learned a different alphabet, so that uh-huh. actually helped my brain already had made that transition to seeing some other picture or symbol as a letter. And then Russian as well is right to left instead of left to right. So actually a few of those pieces were already in there for me. It wasn't that, I don't know. It wasn't that difficult. It wasn't um, a big jump for you. Right. I'd already had some of the foundational pieces laid for me. So Arabic was not a huge stretch. Now the amount of vocabulary that we needed to learn and the amount of intensity of the training that you get at DLI was a big shock, you know, going from Mm -hmm. studying it for an hour a day to studying eight hours a day, doing language intensives and, and full immersions. Um, and then knowing that at the end of it, you have this huge test that you have to pass in order to leave and go to your next command and be any good to anyone. I was going to ask you, do they immerse you in the language while you're there or do they leave that for when you deploy? Well, the idea is that when you start your first um, your first segment of class, it's the basics. It's your um, your alphabet, your basic speaking, your your basic vocabulary. And then you get into more difficult things and you have speaking hours where you're with one instructor and you need to talk the entire hour or you're with your partner in class and you need to talk the entire hour in your language. And then when you're in your final segment of class, you wear a badge on your uniform that tells anyone around you that you are supposed to only be speaking your language. And then we do a weekend immersion. So they lock us in a building on base with everybody in your class and your teachers and you do everything in Arabic. You, you do meal time and rest time and relaxation time and all of your class time in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. That is, is such an interesting side of the Navy that I've never really heard about. So no, that's I why know. I had so many questions about it. Thank I'm, you. I've never met a CTI. I mean, I was in 26 years myself and retired back in October, but I knew some CTRs, more the techie type. Mm-hmm. And maybe a couple CTOs back when they were around, but CTI, I've never, never even seen one before. Maybe I did, I didn't know it, but they were not on ships typically, not the ships yeah. I was on. 
it's a small tight knit community. And in fact, you know, even though there aren't all that many places you can go, you end up meeting the same people over and over. Mm -hmm. And once you know a couple of people, then you meet other people and you can't ever get away from anyone because if there's somebody you don't like, they're going to be at your next command. (laughs) I I can't imagine like going up for chief and you're a CTI and you pissed off some mash chief years before and he's sitting the damn chief board. I remember that guy. You know, I was, I was just thinking like in my head, if they had told me, oh, you qualify for Arabic, I would be like, where am I going? Was that in your mind? Like kind of the end game? What's the end game here, Navy? Well, I was really surprised because my recruiter told me I got to pick my language and she wasn't wrong. I did get to pick my language. I just was not given the choices I thought I was going to be given. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, Okay. I showed up and I was told, okay, this is when you're going to go meet the chief and pick your language. And I was all excited and walked in and he said, okay, what do you want to learn? And I said, Arabic or not, sorry. I said, Russian. Mm -hmm. And he said, your choices are Arabic or Chinese. And I said, I'd like Russian, please. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, Cold War's over. So you can choose Arabic or you can choose Chinese and you got to pick now. And I thought for a second and I thought, well, whose culture am I more interested in? And Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I guess I'm going to learn Arabic. He was like, great. Send in the next person. Wow. (laughs) And your whole life changes from there. Yeah. I can imagine because then you've got to learn culture. You've got to learn history. You've got to learn everything because you can't stick out like a sore thumb when you're in country. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And you need to not only consider that, but you consider where you're going to be based. And then the people that you're in class with are your peers in the Navy for pretty much the rest of your career. And it really does set the trajectory of the rest of your life. That's crazy. Speaking of the rest of your life. You got out after seven and a half well, years. I want to go back to Monterey because oh. that's where you did all your A school, He's right? so interested in yes. Monterey. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I want to talk about a mutual friend, uh, Master Chief Retired Raul Ramos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he he talked very highly of you. So what? how, how did you – because he's a – he's a I'm a, I'm not dogging on your ride. He's a knuckle dragger, A-B-E. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you were a CTI. Very oh, polite. y'all met there while you yes. were in school? So how, how did that happen? So – Current Master Chief Ramos at that point, first class Petty Officer Ramos, was my very first LPO in the Navy. He was my first leader. He was my first impression of what the actual Navy looked like after boot camp. He was the first face I saw the morning after I checked in. And he really set the standard high for what it meant to be a sailor, for what it meant to present yourself in uniform, for what it meant to present yourself to other people in the Navy. And to help that transition after boot camp, because you, we all know you are not a sailor when you leave boot camp. Right. You right. might have that Navy ball cap, but you're not really a sailor. Right. And his job was to help all of us nerdy CTIs fresh out of boot camp. I'm glad you said it. I won't go nerdy. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a type. There is a type. You know, there you do have the occasional extrovert, the occasional jock. Uh, but there are a lot of people who have spent more time in front of a book than they've spent in front of other human beings that end up as CTIs. And they're incredible at what they do. We need those people who are willing to get lost in the weeds with 
the way some verb is conjugated and how it means something different when used in one context versus another context. You need the person who can solve the puzzles and who can break the codes and who can identify 14 different languages based on what's scrolling through their headphones, you know? So you need, you need those people in the Navy. You need us weirdos in the CTI community. I I really can't talk. I'm an ET. Yeah. We're we're nerds too. (laughs) (laughs) But being welcomed into the command by somebody like Raul, who was strict and showed you what discipline actually meant and had high standards and high expectations, but who also saw you as the person you were behind the uniform. He could tell if you were a shitbag and just going to be a shitbag. Right. Or if you were a kid who was having a hard time with the transition of being on your own for the first time, of being accountable to other people for the first time. He had a knack for seeing who you were and what you needed and being able to mentor you where you were at. Wow, I've never awesome. seen anything like it. I've never seen another leader like him. Yeah. He's, he's definitely a special breed for sure. No doubt about it. Wow. And you paid that well to get into it later, but you paid that forward back to him uh, later on in in your y'all's lives. And we'll get yeah. into that later. It was, it was an easy thing to say yes to. Um, it was harder to finish and and deliver and and to continue meeting the expectations that I knew that he had for himself and that I had for um, his story. It was really important to me that it be told by someone who really knew who he was at the heart. Yeah. And you could tell when you're reading it, right? So uh, what we're talking about here is... uh, Joni actually edited Essay to Master Hefe for Raul Ramos, who was on a previous episode of ours. And when we heard your background and when he, I mean, he mentioned you in, in the episode, but then later on filled us in, we were like, we've got to have Joni on this show. Yeah, because like, Joni, you're so damn humble uh, for everything. And I said, Raul, why is she so damn humble? <laughs> I'm trying to get her on this damn show. And she's saying, yeah, I don't have nothing cool ever happened in my life. Yeah, I, don't, I don't do anything. I don't cool. do anything cool. And she goes, bro, she does this, 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 and this. She, <laughs> she needs to, she needs to uh, stop that shit. Basically is what he's saying. There and, is no hype man. Like bro. No, he's a there good is man. no hype man like him. <laughs> I want him like, I wish he, I wish I knew him. Uh, I served with him so he could just write my evals for me. Cause that dude's a good hype man. Yeah, but, right. But yeah, you were the editor for that great book. Yeah. And I I read it. I took I'm not a reader, Johnny. No stress. I'm not a reader. And I was hooked on that damn book. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad. It that's high praise. Absolutely. I, I yeah. But you know, the editing and all of that that you speak on, that you know him, you knew him, and you wanted it to shine through. It definitely does. Yeah. Great I job. didn't want it to go through a filter of someone who was a stranger to him. Mm-hmm. I It was important to me that the person who helped tell his story actually cared about him and about the message that went out to the world because he has such an incredible message to share and he's got 
He's got a heart that just won't quit for other people. And he, he does take care of himself. But I think one of the first things he thinks about when he wakes up in the morning is what he can do for other people, what he can do for his community, what he can do for his country, what he can do for his family. And it was really important that the balance be right in the story because it would be easy to cast him in a rough light. Mm-hmm. It, it right. would be easy for him to be the mm-hmm. own villain in his in the beginning part of his story. But I, it was important that people see his humanity even when he was in that rough spell and even when he was at his lowest. And honestly, you nailed it. He nailed it and then you edited it, nailed it because I didn't see an evil person in right. the, when I read. I didn't read about an evil person. I read about a guy that just an overcomer. Circum- yeah, yeah. overcomer, a circumstance of his own situation. Mm-hmm. He did that to, to survive. Right. He was in the gang. And yeah. then, but he he wasn't a bad person. No. No, he was a broken kid. Right. And he learned how to put himself back together with a lot of help from some amazing people he came across in his life. And he has aimed to be that person for other people. Right. So awesome. he got that hand and he has done everything he could to be that hand to other people. Exactly. Wow. It, was a, it was a great story. And back yeah. back to you. So you did Monterey. You went to Fort Gordon, Georgia. Fort Gordon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So golly, welcome to God's country. You were in the dirty South. How was that? How was that for Monterey? That's night and day. I showed up at the end of August. Mm, okay. Oh yeah. Okay. You were hot as hell. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that you could take a shower and then start sweating before you toweled off. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know that was possible. It's yeah. It's a thing down mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never experienced Southern hospitality. Um, I'd never experienced, uh, even though we're very nice in the Midwest, you know. Indiana, I've been to Indiana, very nice people. We are very nice people, but it is, it's not the level of the person in the gas station calling you honey and then telling you their life story. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we do like to tell our life stories. <laughs> Anybody that'll stop and listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit of culture shock for sure. <laughs> so what did you do there professionally uh, as a CTI? So the way that we work it is once you get to your first duty station, you are then going through additional technical training. So everything that we learn in Monterey is your modern standard Arabic. Uh, but you know, people don't go around speaking modern standard Arabic. So Mm -hmm. that's what it's the Arabic you're going to hear on Al Jazeera. It's the more Quranic form of Arabic. It's very formal. So it would be like someone speaking Shakespearean English on the street. You can understand them, but they sound wacky. And you instantly know you're, you're not from here. Correct. (laughs) Correct. So then you start doing dialect training. So everything sort of narrows in then. So you learn your big picture standard Arabic, and then you learn a dialect, and then you get your technical training where you start listening to comms and understanding how Arabic gets used um, in your target uh, language, in your target dialect, in the target country. Wherever you're going to be working, you start narrowing in on the skill set that you're actually going to need once you're in your shop. 
Wow. So yeah. much learning. Oh yeah. I didn't realize. I mean, I, I, under, I know that it took a lot to learn a different language, but I didn't realize what y'all go through yeah. for, you know, it takes just a to special be able... kind of person. Yeah. I know. I'll be like, Hey, where's the next bar at? That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> yeah. Well, a yeah. school is longer than a year. And then yeah. your dialect training is usually a month or two. And then your um, follow on technical training is generally six to eight weeks. It all depends on op tempo and how much time they've got to teach you and how hard, like how hard up the shops are for new bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, things could have changed since I've been out, but that's yeah. about, you know, the timeline. So it takes almost two years before you've got a security clearance and you've got a dialect yeah. and you've got, you've passed all your follow on training for before you actually sit at your paws and put cans on your head and start working. Wow. And it's not like they get some basic secret clearance either. They no. get the TSSCI, I'm sure. Yes. And, yep. and what were you like when you got to your first, when you started like being a CTI, you know, you're, you're ready. Real hands on. Were you like yeah. a second class? Almost. Yeah. 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 So I, I think I picked up, I think I picked up second right before I went to my shop. That's wow. crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been in the Navy yeah, for true. two years at this point. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you did your time. You you, you got out as a, a CTI one, right? Correct. Yeah. So you went back to the civilian world, did your time and got out. Well, I just mm-hmm. want to know, did you do, can you share anything cool that's oh. like not top secret that you did? Um, I, well, I can say that I was involved in a couple of missions that went really well and ended up is part of President's Daily Brief. And that felt pretty good. Wow. That is it, it felt nice to contribute in that way and know mm-hmm. that, you know, a report that I had helped do or intel that I had helped gather or parse out or a signal that I helped find um, actually was intelligence worthy and helped our country. So that those were the good days. You know, you have a lot of everybody in the Navy knows you've got really boring days. And then all of a sudden it's go, 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 go. And you're up all night and trying to do the best you can and make the mission work. So is that what y'all, y'all just sit around like you stand watch like a normal sailor and just listen for stuff? Yes. So my first job uh, as a CTI, I was following a target that liked to frequency hop. Um, but it was HF. So it was high frequency. And um, at that point, the easiest way for us to find them when they would jump um, was to sort of rotate through their known frequencies. So I would have two in one ear and two in the other ear. And I could rotate through and you'd listen to each channel for about three to five seconds. And so you got really good at listening in three to five seconds to four different things and deciding if you needed to stop and listen longer. Well, dang, I thought I was good as an air traffic controller hearing like, you know, different planes, but you're like, you would literally flipping through uh, frequencies. I know equipment. I've never had to listen to it, but I've worked on equipment. There's the frequency hop uh, thing. And I I don't know, (laughs) that's fast. I've tried to listen to it without, without (laughs) having the right crypto. Right. And that's how you hear. I don't, I don't know how you did. Wow. Know how you did. 
all of that was fine. It's when you would occasionally run across the high tone and you'd all of a sudden get this insane high tone and you couldn't jump off of it because you weren't sure what channel it was on. And so you just got three to five seconds of high tone. (laughs) So I've got a little ringing in my ears as a... um, as a you know souvenir of my time. Uh, <laughs> souvenir. I like the way you put that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> keep it keeps you remembering what you did before in your previous life. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> so what year did you get out? I got out in 2010. Okay. 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 And you went back to civilian sector. Is that when you went to did you use your job be able to go to school? I did a small detour. Um, I was a professional ballroom dance instructor for. Okay, I'm glad you got into that. (laughs) I was going to get into that later. So what got you into ballroom dancing? That's actually how I managed my stress in the Navy. I discovered that, um, I don't know, probably six to nine months after I got to Fort Gordon, I thought, you know what, I need to do something. Mm. All I do is work and go home, work and go home, work and go home. And it's tough when you're on shift work because I was working mids and a lot of my friends were working days or swings. And so you, you don't ever get to see your friends, even when you work in the same building. And so I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta make friends out in town. I gotta see what Augusta is about. And I went to an orientation class for ballroom dancing. And I had danced in high school. I was on our dance, our dance team. And uh, always really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I basically showed up to the studio when I moved in. I mean, they they could have put a cot in the back for me. I just started taking three or four classes a week, group classes, private lessons, showing up to the social dances. I just took to it like a fish to water. Wow. You really wow. throw yourself into everything. Awesome. 100%. It's a theme in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So when you say ballroom dancing, did I mean you're doing some? We call that back home fancy dancing. Yes. And yes. I mean I fancy mean, partner dancing. Exactly. That's that's amazing how you. That, that's like nobody thinks about that, especially a sailor ballroom mm-hmm. dancing yeah. to relieve stress. We're thinking about hey, let's hit the bar. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's go throw darts. A healthy option. Control, healthy option. You got a little yeah. workout. Yes. Well, and it. I was so used to using my brain all day long mm-hmm. that to be able to use my body, but also express myself artistically, it was such a nice outlet for my creativity. I, I love music. I like moving and it combined those things. And it also gave me a community um, in a place that wasn't my home. Yeah. 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 yeah that's true. You made, yeah. you made friends. Yes. Yeah. It was wonderful. Some of my best friends still are in Augusta and are part of that dance community. This is good people in Augusta. My grandfather grew up right across the border in South Carolina, Aiken area. Mm-hmm. Yep. And really nice people. Good, beautiful country up there. It is. Definitely. It's so beautiful. If you can get past the pollen and the humidity <laughs> and the bugs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you do any competitions? Did you do like big competitions? I did. I did. I actually didn't compete very much until I was a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't compete much for myself, but it took all of the pressure off when it came to competition because I was showing off my student. So it actually was really nice. None of the pressure was on me. I just got to have fun and, you know, wear a pretty dress. Um, the pressure is, you know, really on the student who's, who's really competing. So I got the best of both worlds. Wow. Wow. 
Do you still do it to this day or? I still dance for fun. Um, I don't dance nearly as much as I used to. Uh, the last time I danced a lot was when I lived in New York. Um, and I had a dance partner there and we did a lot of competitions, um, and social dance and things like that. So it's been a few years, uh, grad school made it a little bit tough (laughs) to justify spending that kind of time on myself when I could have been studying. Right. I mean, wow. Okay. That's amazing. (laughs) I'm like in shock right now. I feel like such a so so we went from interpreter (laughs) to ballroom dancer, then studying to be a can you say it again? Cardiovascular perfusionist. Where did that come in? Yeah, did you just dream of that one day? Well, I actually wanted to be a PA, a physician's assistant. Um, and I shattered with a friend who was a PA, and I thought, okay, perfect. This is exactly what I want to do. I will help support a doctor. I will help work with patients. My mom's a nurse. Uh, she always told me, I mean, almost daily when I was a child, you need to be a nurse. You need to be a nurse. You'd be great at it. And so the one job I've never considered in my entire life is nursing. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, yeah. I don't blame you. I mean, my parents said, be a teacher and look at me. Yeah. That's <laughs> <true>. yeah. <laughs> uh, But when I started to get to that point in my dance career where I realized that if I wanted to meet my personal professional goals, my financial goals, if I wanted to travel the way I wanted to travel, um, I needed a job with a little bit more uh, steady income. And so I had my GI Bill in my pocket and I started thinking about what I really wanted to do when I grew up. Right. 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 I'm still right. figuring that out. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> quite know. It's, it's a journey. It's <laughs> a real journey. For sure. uh, and I started thinking about alternatives in medicine. You know, what could I do in healthcare that I would really enjoy? And so with PA as a general goal, I went back to school and loved being back in school, loved learning again loved really challenging my brain again. And while I was in school, I came across a perfusionist Mm -hmm. and he had been in the Navy and had gone to PA school and he hated it. And then he told me about perfusion. And I said, okay, let me get this straight. Your patient is asleep the whole time. You're in the operating room. You're part of a team. There's still somebody who the buck can be passed to, which is the surgeon. Right. You're not the top. I'm not the top dog. (laughs) I don't have to deal with upset families. I don't have to deal with patients that are in a ton of pain and groggy and at their worst and most vulnerable. I just get them when they're completely anesthetized. I love it. That sounds amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I've always really liked learning about how the heart function, how the lungs function. Um, it seemed really interesting to me. And there was a big, almost um, engineering component to it because we use a really large machine. And as the only people in the room who understand how the machine works, you are half engineer and half healthcare provider. And I really liked that I could use both sides of my mm-hmm. brain that way. Um, 
what is it exactly that i was just about to say what do you do what do you actually do (laughs) (laughs) so there are times when your heart and or your lungs need a break so whether that is during open heart surgery whether that is in the case of covid uh actual lung failure whether it is someone who's waiting for a lung or a heart transplant and they need a bridge to get that heart or get those lungs, what we do is we provide total life support for both the heart and the lungs, whether it's cardiopulmonary bypass, which is the big machine in the operating room, hooked up to the table, looks like um, almost like garden hoses. I used to watch ER. Yeah, not to make it sound draconian or anything like that, but you know, yeah. you use cannulas that look like big straws that come out uh-huh. of the patient. Right. And we take out your venous blood, your deoxygenated blood, and we have basically an artificial heart and an artificial lung and potentially an artificial kidney on our machine. Wow. And we do everything that your heart and your lungs would normally do. And we send all that good blood back to your body. Um, So during surgery, we arrest the heart, we stop the lungs, and then I take over. It's me. I'm keeping you alive during heart surgery. Um, That way the surgeon can sew because you can't sew teeny tiny stitches on heart with the heart beating and banging away. Right. Right. You have to stop it. Right. Exactly. So that's. So you keep people alive. (laughs) Jeez. That's. That's a lot of power, right in your hands. It is. It's intense, but for (laughs) smart control freaks, it's the best job. (laughs) Yeah, right. I got. Hey, I got your life in my hands right now. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. That I did not know. I've never heard of this profession before. Me neither. And I did not know that there was someone you know, just kind of keeping you alive whenever you go through these procedures. You always know the doc or the the surgeon has, or whoever's doing the surgery has your life in their hands, but you really know shit have the patient's life. Yeah. And I think that's good that you don't have to deal with them while they're alive because they could piss you off. And then, oh, and then a day later, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I will say if you are a more difficult patient in the, in the workup process, right. um, we give you some Versed before you come back to the OR. That way you're a lot nicer to us. Yeah. We go to sleep really quick. Difficult patients go to sleep fast. Good dope. Yeah. Like, so if you know, if you're going in for a procedure and yeah. they're like, all right, well, we're going to go ahead and pay, put you out. You're being difficult. Right. Stop the, it. The earlier you get the drugs, the more you know. <laughs> How your team feels about you. <laughs> well, I guess I'm a big ass asshole. Or maybe they just want you to shut up too. Because yeah, like, right. he's a talker. Yeah, that's true. That's why that's why we do a podcast. <laughs> you see, we all have our niche. We all right. have the place we belong. Yeah. So that training to, to do that, was that was that a, like is that a doctorate? What level of education is that? It's a master's program. Master's, okay. Mm-hmm. It actually runs very similar to PA, which is one of the reasons it was so attractive to me because I'd already sort of made the plan for PA school. Uh, you do a year in the classroom. We call that your didactic year. And while you're doing that, you are learning on a simulator how to do open heart cases. 
Um, but it's also learning about the disease processes and you learn about what, you know, what the human uh, anatomy and physiology is in an ideal sense. And then we learn about how that is um, changed by disease processes, whether it's heart disease or um, congenital disease in pediatric patients. So you learn all of those diff different textbook things at the same time that you're learning how to physically put together the disposables on the pump, uh, because you know that where we actually put the blood gets changed out, of course, for every patient. So you build the circuit that is basically an extension of your patient's wow. vascular system. So I do have this question because as I mentioned before, I used to be an air traffic controller. So I remember going from simulator to real life. Yeah. And I remember, um, you know, being, uh, obviously you don't just like jump in and you're all by yourself. You probably have an instructor next to you and all of that stuff. But what was it like when you got cut loose and you were the person that very first time? It's scary. It is scary. Even though we do an entire year of hands-on training where you have a licensed perfusionist, with you from moment one of the case till the patient rolls out of the room, you've got someone confident and well-trained sitting over your shoulder who can shove you out of the way and take over at a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. You learn how to kind of get your feet under you with that person or at, at that point and with that person. But once you are certified, once you actually take your boards and um, you are trained at your, your new hospital and you are on your own. The great thing I think about perfusion, and I think the Navy does this as well, is there's always someone to call. There's always yeah. another person to call if you get in trouble. So we generally run an N plus one model. So there is, if, you, if you're running six open heart rooms in six cases, there is a seventh perfusionist who is going from room to room to make sure everybody has what they need. And if the shit hits the fan and things go bad, then you've got two sets of hands. Awesome. Oh, nice. I, I just had a thought of me in the OR and some, the there's some doctor saying, this is, uh, this is Miss Joni Harden. She's just starting. She's going to be keeping you alive today. <laughs> Oh I'm God. sure they don't introduce you that way. <laughs> Generally, we just say, hi, I'm going to be part of your team today. Most people don't even know why. <laughs> but she just, the whole just, because you know, in the Navy, you always have like trainees. Yeah, yeah. Like a dental right. or, or medical. Yeah, this, this, she's just training on how to do blood pressure. Oh, okay. That's easy. Yeah. Blood pressure. Well, she's trained on keeping you alive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's gonna be your heart and your lungs for the next yeah. couple of hours. Oh, but don't learning. worry. <laughs> don't worry. She's got this. Yeah. That yeah. is that is amazing. You're you're awesome, amazing lady. What do you do these days? I know you're you're a perfusionist. Did I say it right? Yes. All right. Yes. Perfusionist, but where where you can you tell us like what part of the country you live now? So I live just outside of Washington, DC. Um, and I'm working at a hospital um, in Montgomery County called White Oak Medical Center. Um, it's part of the Adventist Healthcare Network. Um, and I love my job. We, you know, have a busy program. We have 
three surgeons. Um, in fact, a lot of the people that I work with in the OR are also veterans. I got a lot of Navy vets in the OR with me. We're that close to um, Bethesda Naval Hospital, Walter Reed, the VA in DC. So you end up working with a bunch of Navy people. So part oh, wow. of it feels cool. like you you never left. Right. You know, the OR is actually very military. Um, that's awesome. I love that feeling. I love being around vets. Camaraderie. Uh, or you have that instant connection, you know? Yes. yes. And that's one of my favorite things that I took away from the Navy is the ability to connect with another vet, whether they're Army, Marine Corps, right. Air Force. It doesn't matter who they are. You have that instant to take it back to being a CTI, you have that instant common language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, man, it doesn't matter what, what branch you're in. What, once you're out, it's not even a thing anymore. You're just a vet. Absolutely. That's how I feel. Yeah. So do you ever have a chance to get married? You married or? I am married to another CTI. Speaking <laughs> <laughs> uh, of tight knit community. Yeah, right. Real tight knit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was a fleet returnee at DLI when I was there. We didn't know each other then, but when we got to Fort Gordon, um, our friend groups overlapped. So I would see him at brunch. I'd see him in the smoke pit at 3 a.m. He told me stories about what the Navy was like outside of just Fort Gordon because he had been very lucky to get to go to um, the main NSA campus um, at Fort Meade for his first tour. Um, And he was there actually during 9-11. So he had seen a different side of the CTI community than I had seen at that point. And we were just friends and several years passed and, you know, you talk to people on Facebook and catch up and, Hey, what are you doing? And he sent me a message one year that said, Merry Christmas. And we never stopped talking. <laughs> now, now poor things married to me. <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> That's awesome. That's what great. So story. in your, in your profession now, the hospital, how many, how many lives do you help save uh, usually a week over there? You know, do a lot of surgeries. Well, last year we did about 450 open heart cases. Wow. So this year we're on track to probably hit about 400. Um, And those are mostly what we call cabbage and valves. Um, So cabbage is coronary artery bypass grafting, which is when you've got a blockage in your coronary arteries that feed your heart. So we'll, we'll take some vein out of your leg or the vein out of the inside of your chest or the artery out of the inside of your chest wall. And we'll revascularize your heart. So it pumps away like a good muscle should. Uh, or we can replace your valve in the event that it doesn't work anymore. Awesome. Wow. Jamie, this is what I love about this, this gig we do, this podcast. I get to meet amazing people. Amazing Americans. Johnny, uh, thank you so much for allowing us to talk to you today. This has been uh, wow. outstanding. I mean, so there was, amazing. there's times throughout this podcast that I'm just going to let everyone know that my jaw was just on the table. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy <Right>. cow. <laughs> in your young life, you've lived. You've yeah. lived and, yeah. and you've taken advantage of every opportunity thrown at you. And I commend you for that because this is your life story is amazing. And for you to say, you don't have nothing when we, I emailed you, you say, <laughs> I don't have really nothing to talk about is it's bullshit. Honestly, Johnny, I mean, this is, you have amazing life and done a lot of cool things. And so say, when is the uh, Arabic interpreter to 
perfusion cardiovascular uh, book coming out. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, I heard a rumor from uh, Raul that y'all might be doing something. Maybe doing something yes, together. we have a few other projects in the um, in the marinating gestating stage. Uh, we are working on a couple of other things. Uh, he wants to really make sure that he has given the appropriate amount of work towards essay to master Hefe, especially because he wants to be involved in juvenile centers and, right. and, yes. and at risk youth. So he is really pounding the pavement, making that happen right now. Um, and, and just still doing incredible things. Um, so we're going to, we're going to allow him to accomplish all of those things and help as many people as he can with that and to let him enjoy this first little bit of retirement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that book, that book is getting out. up there. Like uh, he took a picture in, in on social media next to David Goggins book in Barnes and Noble. And I yeah. was like, he made it. I know. Everything I see that he posts, it just makes me proud and giddy and happy and excited. And it could not have happened to a better person with a better story. Yeah. Right. And I think it's awesome that you were one of the people that helped, helped get him there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he definitely says that he, he doesn't he does. deny that fact at all. And thank you for actually, I will to be honest with you, John. I think that might've been the first real book I've read cover to cover, cover to back. <laughs> That's incredible. Like in yeah. high school, I did well, but I just, I read the cliff notes. Yeah, got through it. Mm-hmm. I never read a book cover to whatever cover to yeah. cover. He, he thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it and would wake up early while I was drinking my coffee, getting ready for work. He would be reading. So that's, yeah, for Heath, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal because I don't read. Uh, it's really amazing. And like I said before, it's high praise because when you get those details and that context around his story, it it takes it to a whole other level. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, you know, what I do now, I'm waiting on, we're about to transfer to Pittsburgh with Jamie's uh, career. And so I'm in Uber and just to stay sane since retirement. And I've been telling everybody about it. Yeah. Um, we need flyers. I'll make flyers and put them in I mean, here. Like I think that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've been pushing. There's, there's a lady well, he listens to the podcast in the Uber ride. And they're like, oh, this is interesting. He's right. like, oh, you should check out this book. I do. I definitely... See, you're, you are a natural at promotion as well. <laughs> Raul just does it. Yeah. I, yeah. It's <laughs> really difficult for me to feel like I'm, I'm selling something. But man, I, I guess when you really believe in it, it's so easy to just be like, no, here's this incredible, amazing thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Now you have it in your life and your life is better. Actually, uh, Friday, that I had, a, I was taking a lady around Slidell, taking her from one, for a picture up at her hotel and taking her to her last place. She's about to fly out. And I, I started talking about my, I always start out that I'm retired Navy. And then it gets in that me and my wife do a podcast. And I just work it in. And then, I said, you, you like, I asked her, do you like, do you like, uh, uh, be nods kind of stories? She goes, oh, I love it. Well, this is what you need. And she's writing it, writing it down. Thank you for the recommendation. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, if I believe in it, I can't, I can, I could never be a salesman. Right. But I can sell something that I, that I truly <laughs> think is, is, is worthwhile for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, but thank you so much for being on us. with us, Joni. And we're it about has to- been my pleasure. 
Oh, awesome. Thank you. We're about to close out. If you could hang out for a quick second afterwards, I'd appreciate it. We wish you fair winds. And following seas. <laughs> Thank you.